And the clock went off, so golly. Uh, we are so organized, it's astonishing. Okay, a little home uh, housekeeping here. Uh, you'll notice that uh, February 7th, which is a pagan holiday, and we always have to submit to Super Bowl. Baal. February 14th, it turns out, is not something that we can operate on this week because we are bivocational, all of us. This is not a, uh, how do I put it, a fully funded operation, as you probably have discovered or discerned. So Dave has conflicts here. Terry just wants to go on vacation, is what I understand. And so that's uh, that's going to be, and I might have a conflict here as well. But, uh, I'm not certain for sure, but again, like I said, we, we have to, we're trying to survive this pandemic situation as best we can. So we're going to be gone for those two weeks, and we'll be back on the 21st. So we'll have a service, service we'll have <laughs> whatever we call this. <laughs> we'll, we'll have a lecture next week, and then we'll have two weeks uh, where we're out uh, because of Dave and Terry. And uh, it's always their fault, in case you didn't know. And then we'll be back on the 21st of February until we can figure out how to solve some of these issues. Uh, I did uh, really fast. I, I got another letter from Luke, and they're hilarious. And I wish I had a, I wish that we were back in a building and I had a bunch of people because these things are so good. Uh, I don't even know what to say. He says, Dear HTRP and Declarer of Perpetual Finalies. Uh, so, <laughs> whenever things that I do that I think are, I don't know what to call them, not necessarily funny, just eccentric or, or regurgitated back onto me, it's just always just fun. Because I have the attention of a typical millennial, meaning I can't uh, last through the advertisement preceding a YouTube video, I'm growing impatient waiting for you to call and talk to me. I am intending to call and talk to him, but again, you can see the progress we've made on our handrail and all the other things we have to do. Um, so I'm, I'm overwhelmed right now, waiting for you to call and talk to me about quantum physics. He, uh, he wants to talk about, just so you folks understand what you're up against here, uh, I have to do uh, uh, Lorenz transforms, uh, uh, time dilation, differential equations. This is where Luke is, uh, the theory of mass energy equivalence, which is E equals mc squared, as you know, that's Einstein's position. Uh, Maxwell's equations, which that's my wheelhouse because that's electrical systems. And I had to study Maxwell's equations when I was a young man for uh, ad nauseum. Dirac's equation is actually where he wants to go. And, uh, and then, of course, Schrodinger's equation and Newton's laws of motion. That is the discussion that he would like <laughs> us to have. Okay. I acknowledge that you, you're, the problem is on my end, knowing full and well how busy you must be. I am an expert on the life and activities of the Alaskan population, having watched several episodes of Life Below Zero. <laughs> is that great? Be as it may, I thought I would write again on the off chance that you might get a free moment between ice fishing in the dark and hewing logs with a draw knife. <laughs> 
First, I'd like to congratulate you on the coinage of the term annihilationism. Annihilationing. Annihilationing. I can barely say my own word. It's a good one, though still distantly trailing Gertitude as a favorite. But um, he wants, then he goes on to say that I've continued to ruminate on quantum entanglement. And what he's doing here, quantum entanglement fundamentally is displaying uh, not just how the creation is made, but what's inside of the creation that is not physical. For example, existence and will. And that is why, as you know, I do that. Uh, and he wants to deal with Dirac. And Dirac, uh, Dirac, Paul Dirac, a British physicist, uh, he tried to reconcile uh, quantum mechanics, quantum physics, quantum theory, and special relativity. And he ended up with, uh, with coming up with a, what's called the C or the Dirac C, but where he decides that the positron must exist or antimatter. And, the, and we go from, uh, uh, two component function, wave function of particles, especially electrons, to four component fun- wave function. That's what he wants to do. And he says, my apologies to the other cliffsiders. <laughs> in, in other words, let me go to this. He said, uh, the most fascinating part to me is the argument between theorists as to whether the effects of quantum function from, from measurement are instantaneous or not. Either way, Einstein is in trouble. He is absolutely right about that. An intriguing also intriguing is the larger larger particles that I have that have displayed this curious behavior. I can barely read because I can't see, and it's really small, indicating this behavioral propensity extends beyond the quantum level. Absolutely, it does. That's De Broglie. Um, I shall wantonly continue to regurgitate this quantum cud and hope that it will be further addressed in the future. My apologies to the other cliffsiders if it does. <laughs> so that's really good. The, the whole letter is brilliantly written. Uh, and I, I wish I could read it all, but uh, I, I just I would run out of time just laughing at along with it. It's just amazing. So yes, I have to call him. I'm going to call him in my sabbatical as soon as I can. We need, as you can see, they can see, uh, Luke, what you cannot, that the handrail is not uh, compatible with uh, Alaska State Building Codes or Anchorage Municipal Building Code since all the balusters are missing except for, what, three? So I have to tear into that, and it takes a lot of time because I'm slow and old. Okay, enough of that. Got to go fast now. January the 24th, 2021, lecture discussion number 128 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, and Job. (coughs) We will be continuing along with the unnamed prophet. That's where we've been, and that's where we're going again today. 1 Kings 13, plenty of elements. They they require uh, attention, and and quite a bit of them left. I'm going to put my glasses down here, and once I do, I'll forget where they are. So... Remind me, Terry. As per usual, there will not be sufficient time to address the subject comprehensively because there is never enough time to explore any biblical passage copiously. That is the innate design of Scripture. It is designed this way by the intelligence that wrote it. And that is what he wants. 
And so we have to submit to that and understand that it is there. Nonetheless, we're going to endeavor to persevere under the full knowledge that much will be overlooked. It will be undiscovered. There's always gleanings. There's always gleanings. No matter how many times I go through something, there's always something I miss. And there's always something that I go, my goodness, there's an entire lecture right there. Okay, having that's the cliffside disclaimer. I hope that I do that as often as I need to. So where do we begin today? Well, we're going to start back with that withered hand of Jeroboam. That is also the Antichrist. Uh, That is also the Pharisee of Mark 3. That's where we left off last week. So I have three of these that I have to put together and figure out how they fit and what they all mean as a unit as well as individually. And if I were predisposed to continuity, it would be smart to start here, because that's where I left off. But continuity is an antonym to me. I am discursive, right? Which means I am resistant to to continuity by nature, and deviation is ultimately my default mode. I'm not sorry. It is just how I am. So I could say sorry, but it's not really a sorry, it's a fake sorry, as you know. And for those of you who are asking out there, and, and, and no one is asking, but uh, I will answer yes by uh, just anyway. I'm discursive by decision. I want to be this way. Uh, it's a choice. It's willfully discursive. And again, not sorry fake sorry. This withered hand is fantastic. Just absolutely fantastic. Christ heals a withered hand. He does it because, and and it's put in the Bible by the Holy Spirit because of that, right? Obviously, Christ at Mark 3, where the Pharisee comes forward, steps forward and has his hand with, uh, withered hand healed by Christ. Obviously, that's referring to 1 Kings 13 and Zechariah 11.17. That is the That is the Antichrist. And, and obviously, when we see the two withered arms, we have to understand now that they they attach immediately to the withered fig tree of Mark 11, 12 through 14. So I have these three in place here as well. I've got the Jeroboam, the Pharisee, the Antichrist. Now I had the fourth, which is the fig tree of Mark 11 on the way to Genesis 3, 7 and Genesis 3, 21, which is where figs are originally mentioned. So I get figs, the covering of the figs. Now figs show up again with the curse of the figs. And they also show up, therefore, because the curse withers the tree with the withered hand of the, of the uh, Jeroboam, the withered hand of the hand of the Antichrist, and the withered hand of the Pharisee at Mark 3. Genesis 3.21, as you know, is the removal of the fig coverings. So God actually takes those coverings off. You have to ask, why does Adam put them on? Obviously, Adam knows what they mean. We're the ones that don't know what they, what they mean. We have to come up to speed. God removes the fig leaves, the fig coverings, and he clothes Adam and Eve with the tunics of skin, which are blood coverings. The fig tree is cursed by Christ. The cleansing of the temple is associating with the cursing of the fig tree and also the withering of the fig tree. 
And so it's necessary to collect what Christ says to the Pharisee with the withered hand arm and what the unnamed prophet says to Jeroboam because each one, Christ says things to this Pharisee at Mark 3 and they're obviously going to relate or comport with what the unnamed prophet says to King Jeroboam in 1 Kings 13. So I have to lock those together and then tie all of that to the prophecy of the good shepherd and the pagan shepherd. Pagan meaning idol, shepherd, I-D-O-L. Um, at Zechariah 11, 4 through 17, which pushes us into Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. And we now have to bring it all t together in one big place at Zechariah chapter 14. So that's what it takes just to get through this. And uh, Zechariah 11:14 is filled with information on the Antichrist. So we know this withered cursing and all of this has something to do with the Antichrist. So that means we're going to be in Revelation 13, Revelation 17, Revelation 19, all because of the unnamed prophet at 1 Kings 13. And once we've established 1 Kings 13 to Zechariah 11, 17, then Christ's words to the withered hand man at Mark 3 become apparent. In other words, they start to clear up for you. Why does he say step forward, for example? Well, because I've attached it uh, to Zechariah 11.17. Also, it now means that everything that he says to Judas, I can fit in here. Everything that Judas says to him. Because the conversations between Christ and Judas are... Oh, one thing. I do this a lot, as you know. Uh, Luke said... Uh, Upon reading this, I began flogging my noggin exactly as surely you must be now. And he considered that entanglement between the two of us. Now, that's only funny for somebody. I'm glad you laughed. It's only funny for somebody that understands entanglement. But it just killed me. That's so brilliant. You know, these people need to stop watching me so closely. Starting to creep me out. All my little eccentric behavior. Yeah, it really was, wasn't it? I'm glad I remembered it. Ah, essentially, all of that. The totality of 1 Kings 13, Mark 3, Mark 11, 12 through 14, Zechariah chapters 11, 13, and 14, Genesis 3, 7, Genesis 3, 21, they provide the underlayment to the actions and the words of Christ to Judas. And Judas's actions and words to Christ in return. They explain, for example, one example, just one example, why Judas throws the silver to the tilt-tempered potter in Zechariah 11.13. Now, I've pushed those all together. Judas knows that when he throws the silver that he is doing Zechariah 11.13. Matthew 27.3-5. through 5, Why Judas hung himself. Acts 1.19, Zechariah 11.13. The throwing of the silver to the temple potter and the subsequent hanging are congenital. They're connected. These were considered planned responses to Christ's crucifixion. Once Satan, the Satan man, Judas and Satan combined, figured out that Christ was going to allow himself to be crucified, he had total control of it, then they had to respond quickly, and they did. I think there's some anticipation with them, even though I think they were also surprised by many things and don't believe they, they thought that he was going to do what he did. But boy, did they pick it up fast. And again, Judas-Satan in that combination, 
even separated. They did nothing spontaneous, nothing that they said, nothing that they did that was improvised. Begin to look at them as fantastically cunning and very planned, beyond any intellect that we can imagine. Evaluate all that was recorded by Judas, Satan, especially the post-entry of Judas by Satan, their combining, if you will, to be ridiculous in its complexity. Don't ever let it go by as something that is insignificant or simple. And the three withered hands will make that obvious. So that's why we're dealing with the three withered hands as much as we can as we go along here. But before we explore the three withered hands' arms, what they mean, the stretching out, this pulling back, this restoring, this step forward. I said at the end of lecture 127 that I believe they have a salvific uh, as well salvific as well as bridging ingredient. In other words, they bridge to something, but they also have salvation in them somehow. In the sense of uh, salvation is an issue here. Keep in mind again to repeat this a little bit. The first bowl of the seven bowl judgments. That's the loathsome sore that comes upon those who have taken the mark of the beast. Those who have the mark of the beast have that beast, in my opinion, again, it's obvious to me that that, that sore uh, becomes this boil, this loathsome, stinking boil. So they get the mark of the beast. They're all excited. They're showing each other. We are worshipers of the Antichrist. The first thing that God does is turns it into the boil that we see in Job. And it's this oozing, stinking boil. It is not a mark of life. It is a mark of death. And uh, does it change anybody's mind? That becomes a key question. Remember, the mark of the beast is a, a seminal moment. It removes you out of the salvific category. You can no longer be saved. You have willingly chosen something. Uh, those who have taken the mark of the beast who worship the Satan man, Revelation 16-2, Revelation 14, 9-11, the permanence, that's what I'm trying to get through right now. Those who worship and take the mark of the beast will have chosen knowingly to perish. Think that through. There's no accidental taking of the mark of the beast. There's nobody who did it without knowing. There isn't any of that. This is a willful decision with all of this evidence. There's signs and wonders leading up to the, in the first three and a half years of the tribulation that are astonishing. You take the mark of the beast knowing who Christ is and what's going on. If you do it, it's an extraordinary decision. They're going to go into the lake of fire, which is the second death. They're choosing the second death. They might even be aware that the first death results in the second death. Again, we have... We have Issues in the Bible that tell us there are demarcations. There are times when doors are closed. Things are shut off. God stops saving you. He did that at the Ark of Noah in the sense that he couldn't get in the Ark. But as you know, he flooded the earth in order to give them time, right? But here in the, in the tribulation, when that mark of the beast is on you, it turns into a loathsome, stinking, smelling, oozing sore. And that is the end of your opportunity to be saved in the tribulation. And that is a solemn condition. Why do 
they do this. Why do they take the mark? They know. But they still do it. Anyway, all of that and a great deal more is included in this withered hand. This withering of the hand is giving us information about the mark of the beast. I hope that came through. I thought I'd nail it down just in case it did. And it also is included in the withering or the cursing of the fig tree. The cursing causes the withering. So you see the curse of God on the fig tree. It's the only thing that the curse of God withers. So that is interesting in my view. So we have to take these pieces and, and again attach them to one another and then combine them in a group and see what the group is telling us. So in order to get to that we at least must deal with this unnamed prophet. The three sections if you remember from last week I said there's three sections why would you remember? No, I mean, why would I say that if you remember from last week? I'm just hopeful but if you do remember yea you, you're the one the unnamed prophet, the unnameable prophet. What is the name of the prophet? Proverbs 30, verse 4. That, that's enough to tell you that he has this depth to him that, that is clearly going to lead in one direction. He has three phases. And some might even say three offices. And I wouldn't disagree with that. See where I'm going? The first has the prohibition. Or the prohibitions. He has prohibitions that he is given. And the first phase, if you will has that as a component to it, as well as Jeroboam, as well as the split altar, the withered hand, and all of that. The second is the old prophet phase, or old prophet office. He's doing something different. At Jeroboam, he's doing this. With the old prophet, he has now changed what he's doing. It's different. The third is Josiah emptying the tombs of those who killed the children on the altars, and he burns the bones of those people, and as we discussed last week, and as Terry remembers, that also speaks to the lake of fire. And therefore the mark of the beast, beast, and therefore the withered arm, the mark of the beast, the withered fig tree, the cursing, the taking off of the figs, all of these things begin to fit together. And so uh, that is how we are headed, or where we are headed eventually. Quick note for fun, as I define fun. Josiah opened the tombs and burned the bones of these Moloch priests who were killing children. Who killed children. He burned them. He made a, a permanent... Uh, he, he made sure that everyone knew that these were doomed men. That they died in sin and were not redeemed. That's what he was doing. That has again a, a, an attachment, a comportment, if you will, to the mark of the beast. Christ opened tombs also, didn't he? At the moment of... So I have Josiah opening tombs. I have Christ opening tombs. When Christ gave up his spirit, gave up his life, because you can't take it from him, the veil of the temple tore in half. All now could enter the Holy of Holies. Up to this point, only the high priest could with a rope around his neck, right? Throw him in the swamp, boy. Alligator going by. Never mind. Mm-hmm. But the priest had a rope around his leg so they could pull him out because nobody could go into the Holy of Holies. Well, Christ, at his death, makes sure that that veil is ripped in half. He makes sure that the temple, I'm sorry, that, that anyone could enter the Holy of Holies at that point could see in. Uh, how long did it take him to sew that thing back together? He left it open quite a while, didn't he? An earthquake comes, rocks split, the veil splits, the altar splits, that's Jeroboam. I started to put them all together for you. 
So clearly, when Christ gave up his spirit and he opens tombs, that's going to take us back to the splitting of the altar at Jeroboam uh, as well, isn't it? It's also going to send us to uh, Josiah. And obviously, tombs were opened and saints were resurrected. And there's a sequence to all of that. The rending of the veil and the opening of the tombs, they're codependent. They're together. So I have to analyze them as a unit as well as separately. Again, what is the meaning of the whole? Subdivide it into parts, reassemble it, converts the pieces. How does the veil and the opening of the tombs relate? What is the sum of the two? Josiah opened two tombs, uh, and I could say it this way, to the second death, the eternal death. Christ opens tombs to eternal life. So I have two phases here. Josiah is the type of Christ. So when does the opening of the tombs for the second death occur? Because Josiah does it, so Christ has to also do it. And he does do it, doesn't he? He does it at uh, Revelation 13, 11 through 15, and he does it at Revelation 21, 1. In other words, he brings up, if you want to think of it this way, he opens tombs to the second death. And that's really obvious at Revelation 21, 1. The tomb of the sea gives up its dead. The sea is no more, and as it will be with death in Hades. So when he, when he opens the tombs to the second death, the great white throne judgment for those who have rejected his hand of salvation, that is that will be what you see in Josiah when he is also opening up tombs. So I have the white throne judgment being portrayed at Josiah in. Uh, in First Kings 23. I have to ask now the most obvious question. Is there a second death? If there's a second life, is there a second death? If there's a second death, is there a second life? I think the obvious is obvious. We have what we consider life. This isn't real life. It's just a transition to life. But we have existence. And then we have life with existence. They have death with existence. They have a first death. And then they have a second death with existence. So, okay. Now I have a note that we have to read really fast. First Kings 13. Just a little bit of it here. This part. First Kings 13, 6-10. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him. So the withered hand became as before. Then the king said to the man, Come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. Really? He just tried to kill him. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. Where is this place? Bethel. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Immediately, the unnamed prophet has these prohibitions. You has not has not eating. He can't eat. He has that in common 
with the uh, uh, with the one who cannot be named, if you want to think of it that way, the infinite one. So he has a prohibition in eating. Where does Christ not eat bread? Find it, because there's a place where he doesn't eat bread. So he has that in common. I'm going to call Christ the unnameable one. And I'm going to call this one the unnamed one. Or Christ I would call the infinite one. He's infinite, therefore he is unnameable. The last Adam then, of course, uh, and that's Christ, has something uh, in, in... He is portrayed by Adam, the first Adam. And the first Adam named the animals individually. And he names the woman twice. So I have this naming element here. Why does he name the woman twice? Why does he name the animals individually? Why does he do that? Why does God have him do that? What is naming? What does naming have to do with anything? Why does God name us? And he gives us names when we're resurrected. So we now are in Revelation trying to figure out this man does not have a name. He's specifically unnamed. And that has great meaning. Christ referred to Satan. I'm sorry. Christ refused Satan with respect to bread. That's where he doesn't eat bread. So now I've got to bring in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 because that is the testing of Christ, Exodus 17, 1-7. So I have something happening here with all of these pieces that make a unit. So that's a start. But why drink no water? I get the bread pretty fast, I hope. We're going to, we're going to go over the bread because the bread's going to put us to manna. And we'll end up that way. We can understand why he eats no bread. Don't eat bread in Bethel. But why not? Why drink no water? That could have been that. We don't know what time. It's the eighth month, so maybe there was enough water. It might have been enough rain. He could have had water on the way, maybe brought water. But it seems to be difficult to have no water. Nor return by the same way you came, which that has one eleven as a compliment. What's 111 Acts? That's the ascension of Christ. What do they say? The, the apostles are watching him go up, and what do the angels say to him? They say, uh, he will return in like manner as he went. So Christ returns exactly as he came. But the unnamed prophet is not to return as he came. So what's the difference? Why the difference? Uh, we need to read about the death now of the man of God, the unnamed prophet. I'm obviously wording things intentionally as I do this up to this. This is all the precursor here. This is the introduction to illustrate this incredible typology in case the obvious is not obvious. I need to tell you that. So let's go ahead and read. I, I got to read it all. I can't leave. I tried to leave out anything. Couldn't leave out one single piece. And that's, of course, a redundancy. Single piece. One single I can do that because I'm an HTRP. It's not up on the board. I can intentionally do redundancies. I have a license. Okay. Let's read 1 Kings. We'll start at 11, verse 11. And again, have to read it all. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel. Notice what I'm doing there. And his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. They got a lot of information, don't they? And their father said to them, Which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went who came from Judah. 
Then he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So they said, we can't saddle his own donkey. So they saddled the donkey for him and he rode on it. Well, yeah, that makes some sense. And went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Of course he did. Now the am is in italics. But you can see where I'm headed there. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. Now, did he know about the prohibitions at this point? We'll keep going. And he said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. (coughs) For I've been told by the word of the Lord. And that's YHVH. That is the I am that I am. You shall not eat bread nor drink water there nor return by going the way you came. He said to him, I too am a prophet as you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the YHVH. She uses the I am that I am, the tetragrammaton. Saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came. Now there's some, I'll clean this up in a minute. I do not believe that it came to the old prophet. So when it's the word of the Lord came to the prophet who, uh, and the actual phrasing here is, whom he brought back. So that, that language comes up again in, uh, in 1 Kings 13.23. So it's really easy to get confused, and overwhelmingly the commentaries that you will read are confused here. They think the, the uh, old prophet spoke that out. And I don't believe, I think it is obvious that that's not true. I think this is the voice of God. The word of the Lord came to the unnamed prophet, And he cried out to the man of God. So that is Christ. That is God crying out to the man of God. A great clamor is the Hebrew. There's a great noise, a loud noise. So the voice of God does not come through the old prophet. It comes to the unnamed prophet. It's a great clamor. Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, eat no bread, drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your father. So it was after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. Now that's the exact same words in that other sentence back there. Make sure I get the the, in uh, verse 21. It's uh, Asher Hez, uh, Hez Hebo, if I'm right. H-E-S-H-I-B-O, Asher, grandson's name. So that means uh, exactly as it is here in 23, whom he had brought back. When he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse. And there men passed by, saw the corpse thrown on the road, and the lion standing by the corpse. And then they went and told it to the city where the old prophet was. That would be Bethel, wouldn't it? Now, when the prophet uh, who, who had brought him back from the way heard it, 
He said, it is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him. Now, how do you know that? Hasn't seen it. Has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son, saying, saddle the donkey. So he's got two donkeys. Keep that in mind. Uh, And so they saddled it. Then he went and found his corpse thrown on the road, and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse, nor torn the donkey. Now, obvious question, did he tear the body of the unnamed prophet? Didn't tear the body of the donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn Bethel and to bury him. Then he laid the corpse in his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother! So it was after he had buried him that he spoke to his son, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones for the saying which he cried out at the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil ways. So, there we go. Okay? Immediately, um, hang on. Let me make sure I'm lose track now. Okay, immediately, we are going to have to make a list. Because list makers don't list, list makers never not list. The old prophet, old prophet in Bethel. How many times did I repeat the word? There is a Bethel, Alaska. Uh, I've been there. I put in a sewer system in freezing cold. I was 50 below. It was brutal. From there I went to Hawaii, in case you want to know how I went to that motivated me to go to a lot. Okay? Then the sons told him. He has sons, and they told. And then we have three, really fast. The man of God in Bethel. They told him what the man of God did in Bethel. So he, man of God, is now associated in Bethel. Again, not Bethel, Alaska. <laughs> Which way did he go? I can't go back the way he he came. He has to. Which way did he go? He has to return a different way. And we got to push stop right now. We got four of them done. We got to push stop. We got to arrest the list making, which makes list makers do this. We have to obviously. We got to do something. If I'm stopping the list, that's an alarm's going off, isn't it? Something important. Ding, 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 ding. Right. Uh, siren, I should have a horn. Halting uh, the list making demands that there be a high threshold of alarm. Why is the old prophet in Bethel? What's he doing? This this place of evil, child sacrifice. That's 2 Kings 23.4, It's clearly a place of child sacrifice. Moloch, Baal, they're the same. You can co-mingle them. You can say Baal, you can say Moloch. You're going to get child sacrifice. I find it interesting that the, 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 no, I don't even know what to say. I should not get into this kind of thing. 
when a country begins to embrace the killing of children, that is a doomed country. There's nothing you can do but wait for the doom. It will come. It's very disappointing to see that happen. Again, we are a country that is killing children by the millions. And we, there's just no possibility. That is one of the things that God says he hates, the shedding of innocent blood. Okay. Why did God choose to send the unnamed prophet from Judah? Why not send the old prophet who's already in Bethel? Obviously, he cannot send the old prophet that is in Bethel to do this because the old prophet that is in Bethel, there's a reason he can't. Start thinking about the reason the old prophet is not chosen. The young prophet is chosen, not the young prophet, the unnamed prophet is chosen. How did the sons know, how did they learn of what the unnamed prophet said and what the, unpro- the unnamed prophet did at Jeroboam's sacramental event? How do they know this? Because they told him all the work, all the what he did, and all what he said. Did they transfer first-hand witness testimony? Of course they did. I say yes. And if I am correct again, duh. Still. Then they are likely participants here, aren't they? The sons are obviously involved in the sacrifice of children. Now, what does that say about the father? How far does the acorn fall, right? At what level of participation are they at? They're obviously participants, either worshipers or they're priests. That's your only two choices. You pick one. I think that it's clear they are priests because their father is what? A prophet. Their father is a supposed prophet. He's a religious ecclesiastic. Again, HTRP. Oops, I erased it. That's a redundancy. What is the likelihood here of a family business? Are the sons priests of Moloch and Baal? That's a binary question. Yes or no? I think they are. I think I can prove it. I think it's obvious as we keep going through the text. So I submit yes. These sons are priests of Baal. They are killing the children. And they come back to the father with all of this information, you will not believe what happened. You were not sent. A man from Judah was sent. Did the sons hear the prohibitions? Well, if they heard all that he said, all that he did, then clearly they heard all the prohibitions. They told the father the words of the unnamed prophet that he had spoken to the king Jeroboam. 1 Kings 13.11 the prohibitions were spoken to Jeroboam, 1 Kings 13.8. All the works, all the words were told to the old prophet. So now they've heard all the words, they saw all the works. What's the obvious question? How close were they to Jeroboam? How close were they to this unnamed prophet who was also very close to Jeroboam? They're clearly right there, aren't they? How high up in the priest business are they? How many... What are they doing here? Are they standing there going, um, and clapping, chanting, running around? Or are they actually the killers of the children? Okay. We'll restart the assembly line. Go to five.
His sons had seen which way he went. Sons saw. Same questions, right? Yeah. Uh, then we have a donkey coming into play. Every time I have a donkey, I gotta I gotta connect that to the the donkey, if you will. That Christ said, "Find the donkey, the, the mare, and the colt." Right? Um, and the old prophet chased him. I'm gonna call him the old P. He chased after him. He got his own donkey. All right, he got a donkey, he got this donkey, and he goes after the, the guy. He finds him sitting under an oak. So I got the oak, and he's sitting. Why is he sitting? Why isn't he still on the move? Is he waiting? Yeah. I think it is clear that he is waiting. Thank you for your yes. Are you the man of God? Are you <laughs> the... Let me do this right. Because this is so good. Are you the man of God? I am. You've got to be kidding. Come home with me. Eat bread. In Bethel. Stop the list now. The man of God was offered a reward from Jeroboam, right? Jeroboam says, I will give you a reward. Come home and eat with me and I will give you a reward. Refresh yourself, which I assume is a warm bath and food. That's how I would do it. He was offered a reward for restoring the withered hand, the withered arm hand of Jeroboam. 1 Kings 13.7 How much reward? Well, he tells you how much reward. He says to him, uh, if you were to give me half your kingdom, uh, if you were to give me half your kingdom, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread, nor drink water in this place. This place. We'll call it Bethel. He calls it this place. Of evil, so if you, where, where else in the Bible does somebody turn down an offer for a kingdom? And again, I'm trying to be obvious here, but I hope that I don't have to be eventually. The man of God then speaks the prohibitions. See, he says that uh, for it was commanded me, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. And that, of course. Uh, is heard by everyone there. Everyone there heard that. Immediately, the most obvious of all of these most obvious questions, why did YHVH, the I am that I am, give these restrictions? This is, these are given by God. Why does he give them? They are certainly attached to the and are repudiations of Jeroboam and his Moloch priests. You go in, you split the altar, you pour out the ashes of the children, Go ahead, take care of the hand that I wither, and then these are the things you do next. This bread, water returned. What's the meaning of these as a unit? The sons knew which way the man of God left. Terry is absolutely right. They, he left on foot, didn't he? How did they know that? Was it merely incidental due, uh, due to proximity? They happened to see which way he went. 
or, or did they uh, did they follow him? And I think it's obvious that they followed him. They immediately followed him, followed him. Why would they follow him? They followed him because they knew that their father would want to go after him. And so why did they know that? How did they figure that out? They immediately said, we've got to follow him because our father is going after him. Again, let me put it this way. How powerful is this old prophet? We think this is an old guy like me. He's infirm. He can barely talk. He spits all over stuff. Just like me. But he's not. He's incredibly powerful. His sons are incredibly powerful. This man has a great deal of influence. Why does the old prophet hunt down the man of God? What's he planning to do? To repeat, the old prophet knows the prohibition and he's prepared. He has a lie prepared, right? That's a what? That's a trap. He's trying to kill this man. He deliberate he knows that if he does if he does this, <coughs> he puts himself in jeopardy of condemnation. How did he figure that out? He says, Come home with me and eat bread. And the and the unnamed prophet says, I cannot return with you. Go in with you. I cannot eat bread. I cannot drink water in this evil place. And that's a really interesting thing. Because uh, Bethel does not mean evil place. What does Bethel mean? It means holy place. So now we have an incredible uh, piece of information there. A clue, if you will. So, okay, back to more lists. I'm going to start at 12. Let's get rid of this. I'm going to worry about my time. So, I'm always worried about the time now. It freaks me out. Okay, I'm doing good so far. I am too. I am also a prophet as you. Prophet as you. Really? An angel spoke to me. No. By the word of YHVH. No. So he uses again the ineffable name of God. He says, disobey the restrictions, the prohibitions. So the man of God, the man of God, complies. Returns with him. I wonder who rode the donkey. Just asking for a friend. If I had a friend, the man of God went back. The man of God returns and he ate bread and he drank water. So we're going to stop the, the list right here now. This is my absolute belief, resolute belief, that the, only, that the only way you figure this out, the only path forward, if you will, the only explanations that are going to conform, that are going to concur, concur with Second Kings 23, which is what Josiah does, is the one that begins with the man of God God 
not being deceived by the lie. Right. The man of God, he's unnamed, he's a portrait of Christ. Josiah is a portrait of Christ. The unnamed man has an overt relationship with the first Adam, who's also a type of Christ then. If he's, if he's a type of Christ, then Adam and he must be related because Adam is a type of Christ. Scripture identified Adam as a type of Christ, Romans 5.14, and Moses as a type of Christ, Deuteronomy 18.15, as you know. So whenever you find anybody attached to Christ, you have to attach them to Moses and Adam. And the unnamed prophet is clearly overwhelmingly attached to both of them. And when you're starting, I can't say that enough. This is a, Go understand how these things fit together. Anyway, both Adam and the man of God eat and die. So we start with that. Both eat, both die. There's a lie involved in both. The lie of Satan and the lie of the old prophet. Uh Uh-oh. But neither are deceived by the lie. 1 Timothy 2.14 It is in my most humble of all my humbler opinions with all due respect, which means that I'm not going to give any respect, right? Whenever you say all due respect, uh, <laughs> we can be honest about it, you're, you're not going to give respect. Mm-hmm. With all due respect. <laughs> the conventional commentary on this passage, uh, which you buy all these books, which I have reams of books. I read them, uh, almost all of them, completely, which is why I'm strange. Is that... Um, well, I'll just say this. The, the commentaries on this passage, 1 Kings 13, is dreadfully counterfactual. It's catawampus upside the head. It's so bad. It's just not good. I ask all, I've written everywhere I've, I see these, all my commentaries. I, I looked at them today. You looked at them yesterday. I looked at them the day before. I've written the same thing every time because I've done this passage before. Not to this level. So if you go look this up, you're going to find out that when I did it, I was different. I was different because I was compromised. And I wrote a nice letter, I hope a nice letter, I never heard back from her. I tried to explain in my youthfulness, I was very careful to do these kinds of subjects because it would alienate people. And I thought, well, I will give them conventional positions in order to not be outside the parameters of this business that I'm in. And it kept me from being attacked by the people that um, uh, who didn't like me. I am not likable. And that's really surprising. I seem very likable to myself. Okay, I fooled one more person. That's fantastic. But anyway, they did not like it when I first began. I get letters and all kinds of comments about what I do. But I ask the same question in all these commentaries. I write it in big, bold letters. Where is the testifying of Christ? Where is, first, or where is John 5.39? The whole Old Testament is about Christ. Where is the Christ position? Don't give me the conventional position if it is Christless. I want to see the Christ position. Where is the Christ position? Uh, they, the commentators, the ubiquitous they, insist, on, insist that the man of God fell for the angel spoke to me. No. Can I say crap? I don't know. I can't say that? Well, 
Well, you called Chris. Oh, can I? Yeah. Okay, because I did. This is he, he clearly didn't fall for the angel. Who's the angel? The angel are the sons. Okay, the the the, the, the sons of the the Malik priest sons of the old prophet or the angel. He didn't buy that. He didn't buy. Uh, I'm a prophet as you. He's not stupid. He's not deceived. He's a picture of Christ. He's also tied to Adam. I, am, I too am a prophet as you. Really? Why, why are you in Bethel, Jeroboam's evil place, doing nothing then? Why didn't God use you? Why are your sons killing innocents if you're a prophet just like me? No, no, no. The unnamed prophet did not believe any of this idiotic, stupid perjury. He did not. And if you think he did, then you're going to miss out on all of these wondrous treasures that are here. He didn't, not one word of what this old prophet said to him did he believe. So, why did he go back with him? Why did he eat bread? Why did he drink water? Why did he give up his life if he knew it was a lie? Key question, isn't it? That goes back to Adam. Why did Adam give up his life when he knew his wife had been deceived by the law? I'm getting ahead. I'm going off script. Okay. How am I doing? Woo, baby. Can't put it up here. Number 17. Don't have time to write it. The word of YHVH, John 1, cries out to the man of God. God himself said this. This is the voice of God. Thus says the Lord, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Wait a minute. That's Genesis 3.17. I put them two together, didn't I? The word of the Lord said, as you remember, thus says the word, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, and drank water in the place of which I said to you, eat no bread, drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your father. That's what he said to the unnamed prophet. What did I say he just said? I cheated. I said Genesis 3.17. Thus says the Lord, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I have commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Okay? Thus you shall return. That's 17, 18, and 19. Again, it is God himself. It is the voice of God. It is not the lying old prophet crying out. It is the voice of God crying out. So I, I, I mingle those together. Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord, uh, your corpse shall not be in the tomb of your father's. Okay, what does that mean? Your corpse shall not be in the tomb of your fathers. Bethel, again, means holy place. I should interject here, uh, I can't say it enough. The significant element, I believe here, is that Bethel means holy place. The man of God was sent to the holy place. He's buried in the holy place. Uh, What else happened at the holy place? Well, now that would be what else happened in Bethel, in other words. That would be Genesis 28, 20 through 22. In case you think I'm just wandering around doing nothing that makes sense. What is that? That is the ladder of Jacob. I am that I am. The God of the living God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Matthew 22, 29 through 33. And... 
Bethel. Bethel is the holy place. That's the place where Christ announces, again, Matthew 22, that he is the one that resurrects. He is the the resurrection. He's the life. You have to be both in order to be one. They again are are tied together. Now I've got to really rush because there's the alarm. Bethel, the holy place, is the place of resurrection. But here it is this place, this place of evil. The unnamed prophet would not be buried with the bones of his father, but instead at the holy place of resurrection, the place of the ladder, of the ascending and the descending, the angels on the ladder, this mediation, this this gateway back to God, reconciliation with God. That's where the unnamed prophet is buried. Is that a bad thing? doesn't seem like it to me. And I realize most scholars who almost unanimously assert that the man of God is disgraced by not being buried with his fathers. Again, to repeat, this position omits John 5.39. The testifying of Christ. Find Christ. That's the singular purpose of the Old Testament. Obviously, the body of the unnamed man of God would be in the holy place of resurrection. Being that Christ himself is the resurrection and the life, John 11.25. The old prophet figures this out. Okay? I know that. Now we have two donkeys. And again, Christ rides a donkey. It's a saying. He doesn't ride a lion. He rides the donkey. The The donkey is associated with Christ. Not the lion. Even though he is the lion of Judah. Who else is a lion that prowls around and tries to kill people? Prowls around. Roaring lion. Lion kills the man of God. The corpse is thrown on the road. The donkey stood by the corpse. The lion stood by the corpse. They are right there. Men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road at Bethel. Or near Bethel. Try to imagine this, if you will. The lion kills the man of God. The body of the man of God is placed in the road. The body is preserved. It's untouched. How did he die? The lion killed him. How did he die? Right now in Bakersfield, California, Susie and Val Joe are shouting out, Wow, I got Jude 9 here. I got Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 6. I have the donkey and I have a lion and I got a body. Uh, Just consider for today, the lion and the donkey are side by side guarding the body of the unnamed man of God. That's what they're doing. And you're walking by and you see a lion and you see a body and you see a donkey. The two of them are right there over the body that is preserved obvious question, is the donkey preventing the lion from tearing the body to pieces? How is this working? Is this Jude 9, Satan and Michael contending over the body of Moses? Men passed by to going to the holy place of resurrection where they tell the old prophet. Why do they tell the old prophet? How do they know to tell the old prophet? The men on the road seek out the old prophet. They're going to tell him. They don't know. But they go to the old prophet with this information about the donkey and the lion and the corpse. 
how powerful is this old prophet? Seems like everybody's coming to see him. Who's more powerful than him in Bethel? And the old prophet preaches a sermon. He does. He says, It is a man of God who is disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore the lion has delivered him to the or the Lord has delivered him to the lion which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to him. He preaches a sermon. Is he right? No. Completely wrong. He said, Saddle the donkey. So he's got a donkey, another donkey, two donkeys, and he goes out. In any event, the lion and the donkey allowed the old prophet, okay, let me say it this way, the the lion and the donkey allowed Nicodemus to take the body of the man of God. Okay? Because Christ, Nicodemus, and Joseph of Arimathea take the body of Christ. The old prophet takes the body of the man of God who dies in the holy place of resurrection. John 5.39 again, and he places it on the donkey. And now we start to see him get it. The old prophet weeps, is filled with great sorrow at the death of the man of God. He finally figures out what's going on. He now knows the truth. Who else is going to weep when they finally know the truth? That's going to be Zechariah 10, 12, uh, 12, sorry, Zechariah 12, 10 through 11. That is going to be Israel grieving for Christ, mourning for Christ as one mourns for his only son, for the firstborn. The old prophet begins to figure things out, 1 Kings 13.30, as do his sons. They also weep for the unnamed prophet. They are all weeping. They all cry out, 1 Kings 13.31-30. They cry out, Joel 2.32. Joel 2.32. I know you're thinking, how does he do this? I actually got Joel 2.32 into this story. The old prophet, again, Nicodemus, put them together, lays the man of God in his own tomb, in the tomb of the old prophet, and orders his son to make sure my bones are next to his bones. I gotta be right there with him. And that of course is second Kings thirteen, twenty through twenty one. That is Elisha. If your bones are touching the bones of the man of God, what kind of deal is that? What happened to the man whose bones touched the man of God's bones in, in this case Elijah in Second Kings thirteen, twenty through twenty one? What did I get? I got resurrection. This is about resurrection. Just like Job is about resurrection. Because the unnamed prophet man of God is associated with resurrection to life. Resurrecting to life, not resurrecting to death. So why does Christ return the way he came? Because he does. Why this difference? Why did the unnamed man return to Bethel? Eat and drink with the fallen prophet. That is a rhetorical question that you have already answered, haven't you? What does Christ do that unnamed man gave up his life for this prophet, or this old prophet. Did he know about this prophet? Did he know about the prophet's son? He chooses to, he lets the guy lie. He goes with him anyway. Never deceived, goes with him anyway. Knows that he has to die. Now, by doing that, has to give up his life for who? Who gets saved in the picture? 
structure. Who mourns? Who says, make sure when that old, that unnamed prophet is resurrected, I go with him. Put my bones with his. Mix them all together. Got duct tape and pour tar over. Make sure that we, we go. So, where do you think the sons of the old prophet buried themselves? I think the whole tomb was filled with them, right? Anyway, that's how we stop for today. Next week, we'll be back again. We'll be gone on the 7th and the 14th, back on the 21st, but we will be operating next week if you call this operating. And that's all, folks.